my first four years at Bethel, literally leading up until coming here and back in January in this new role, my first four years, part of my role was leading our young adult ministry called Rooted. It's 18 through mid-20s, and uh, Sky and I loved leading that, that ministry. Part of that role was we had a small group that met in our house. We had about 20 to 25 young adults who would meet every other week. We would worship together and pray together and study God's word together, eat together, and it was wonderful. And early on, they started calling us Rooted Dad and Rooted Mom. I'm not old enough to be their dad, so you, more of you should be laughing. I was like, really? Can't, like, how about rooted, like, big brother, big sister, cool uncle, cool aunt, like, really rooted dad? But the more I thought about it, it kind of makes sense, because I fit every stereotypical dad trope there is. I mean, everything. Like, the, where I draw the line is, I don't wear sandals with knee-high socks and shorts, <laughs> I draw the line there. I don't do that. I've never done that. But everything else, I, I fit the dad mold. Love that dad life, including dad jokes. Oh, my goodness. I love me some dad jokes. So much so that last year they got me this shirt, which says, dad jokes? I think you mean rat jokes. <laughs> I, I love dad jokes. I say them all the time. Do you want to hear some dad jokes? Well, I don't care. I'm going to do it anyway because it's Father's Day and I get to do what I want. Singing in the shower is fun until you get soap in your mouth. Then it becomes a soap opera. <laughs> what do you call a factory that just makes okay products? A satisfactory. Uh. <laughs> what did one wall say to the other? I'll meet you at the corner. <laughs> what did the ocean say to the beach? Nothing, it just waved. <laughs> By the way, you know a dad joke is a dad joke when the dad telling it is the only one who laughs, <laughs> which I just did. I love this one. How do you follow Will Smith in the snow? Look for the fresh prints. <laughs> Why do fathers take an extra pair of socks golfing? Just in case they get a hole in one. And then last, how do you know when a dad joke, when a joke becomes a dad joke? when it becomes apparent. Okay, I'll let you think about that one. I got some, hmm. I love dad jokes, and I love being a dad, but not because of the dad jokes. That's a small little perk. I love being a dad because I get to invest in my little girls, pointing and praying, pointing and praying. I mentioned that on Mother's Day. Those are the two responsibilities of a parent, point and pray pointing them to Jesus and praying over them. So I point and pray with hope that they grow up to be godly women. And we are continuing our teaching series this summer called Bottom Lines of the Bible, which features key Bible verses that uh, have heavy implications for the daily Christian walk, godly principles that we should live by. And today being Father's Day, the focus is on parenting, particularly for dads. And, and listen, we recognize that for some, there's some deep wounds here. You might have some deep complexity when we talk about fatherhood emotionally. Perhaps you didn't have a dad who was present growing up. Or maybe you had a dad who was present, but he just wasn't hardly there. Or maybe you had a dad who was there, but you wish he wasn't because he inflicted harm verbally or emotionally or physically. And I, I got to tell you, my heart breaks for you. 
Not only because it was that painful to have a, a man who did not exemplify godly manhood, godly fatherhood, but it may have tainted your view of our heavenly father. Fatherhood in our society is woefully misunderstood. It is diminished in value. It is criminally demonized, which is tragic because godly fathers should reflect the character of God. And if you are not a dad, listen, stay tuned. Stay dialed into this message because I promise you there's going to be something for you. And it's going to help you pray over other men. I believe all men are called to at least be a father figure for younger men, to pour into them. And so you'll know how to pray for dads in this precious role. So turn to the book of Ephesians. In Ephesians chapters 1 through 3, Paul gives heavy, beautiful gospel doctrine. Some of the most astounding descriptions and implications of the gospel that you will ever read. And then in verses, or chapters 4 through 6, he gives the application. He gives instructions for Christians to live the gospel. How do you live in light of the gospel? And he addresses several groups. And then we get to chapter 6, and he addresses children and parents. So that's where we're going to pick it up. Ephesians chapter 6. Children. Obey your parents in the Lord, for this is right. Honor your father and mother. This is the first commandment with a promise that it may go well with you and that you may live long in the land. Fathers, do not provoke your children to anger, but raise them up in the discipline and instruction of the Lord. Children, obey your parents, for this is right. And all the parents said, amen. amen. That was a hearty amen. It is right to obey your parents. In the Lord. Key phrase. This is not carte blanche permission to treat your children as slaves or as soldiers, parents. You can't just bark orders at them. You have to obey my orders. You have to do as I say. That's not the intention behind this. In fact, as we will see later, that militaristic kind of parental thinking will actually drive a wedge between you and your kids. It will stiff arm them. It will drive them away. I mean, if your parents, think about it, if your parents were telling you, hey, we're going to rob the bank across the street tomorrow, you have to do it with us, you have to obey, you can't go, well, Ephesians 6 says obey your parents, so let's go rob a bank. No, you don't obey that. This is not blind obedience into sin or into harm, but into righteousness. That's why he says, children, obey your parents in the Lord, for this is right. This doesn't apply to abusive or megalomaniac or wicked parents who are telling their children to do atrocious things. This applies to parents who are parenting in the Lord, giving godly parental instruction, guiding and discipling and disciplining according to biblical principles. When parents are striving to be godly parents, and listen, when I say godly parents, I mean parents who are trying to parent in the Lord. They're trying by grace, by his strength, to raise up their children in the Lord. So when parents are striving to be godly parents, listen, children, follow them as they follow Jesus. Paul says that in 1 Corinthians 11, follow my example, follow me as I follow Jesus. Parents do the same, follow them as they follow Jesus. Now parents, are we ever perfect? Anyone ever perfect? No, parents will never be perfect but they are worth following if they keep their eyes on the one who is perfect. I don't know if you've ever followed someone driving who is really difficult to follow. Like let's say you and a friend, you have separate cars, they're like, hey, 
Uh, I'm going to get us to our friend's house. I have the address. I have the directions, the destination. I have GPS. I have a map. Just follow me. You don't have any of those things. Just, and they're like, just follow me. And you're like, oh, okay. So they get in their car. You get in your car. And they take off like a speed demon. I mean like Mario Andretti just... <laughs> And they are weaving in and out of traffic. And you're like, what are they doing? Do they not remember I'm following them? And they're, you know, in and out, in and out of traffic. And then all of a sudden they slow down to like a glacial pace. You're like, can you pick a speed and go with it? And then they come up to a stoplight. And the stoplight turns yellow. And you're thinking, oh, okay, good. They'll stop because they know I'm following them. Nope. They go right through it. You're like, hey! And then you go through, as the yellow is turning red, I call it orange light. You ever gone through an orange light? You're going through as it's orange, like, I hope there's not a camera. And you get through, you're trying to stay up with them, and then they pull into a parking lot. And you're thinking, oh, good, we're here. Nope, they're just doing a U-turn because they missed the turn. And so they're doing this, and you look at them, and you're like, and they go, you're like, no problem, I got this. And then they go back the other way. You're like, what is going on? But they finally get there. Now they're driving maybe all over the place. It may be hectic. It may be messy. But ultimately, you need to follow them because they will likely get you there. They have a much better chance of leading you to your desired destination than you do on your own. Children, your parents may seem all over the place. It may be hectic. It may be messy. But if they are striving to follow the Lord, follow their direction as they follow his. Because godly parents our guides. Parents, we are guides. The journey of life has all kinds of dangers and snares, twists and turns and rough roads. And we need people to help us navigate the pitfalls and potholes of life. And that's what parents in the Lord are supposed to do. That's what we do. We navigate our children around the pitfalls, around the potholes. We guide our children through life in the ways of the Lord. And Paul quotes Exodus 20, verse 12. It's the fifth commandment of the Ten Commandments. Honor your father and mother. Honor. Honor is not a word that our culture uses as much anymore. I wish we did. We should honor those to whom honor is due. What is honor? Well, the, the root word of honor, whether you're talking about Hebrew in the Old Testament or Greek in the New Testament, it's fascinating. The, the root word for honor was value or price. One would weigh something back in the day to determine its value. And so if you were trying to sell gold ore to a merchant, the merchant would inspect it, he would weigh it, he would balance it, he would look at it closely, he would try to determine its authenticity. And in so doing, he was trying to determine how much honor it had. And if it was of high value, it had greater honor. Well, somewhere along the line, in linguistics, this word started to be used of people. Show high value for honorable people. Show them respect. They're worthy of respect, worthy of dignity. Children, cherish and treasure your parents because they are valuable. If they are parenting you in the Lord, that is a rare and beautiful thing. Honor them. Cherish them. See them as unique and honorable and precious and valuable because they want to help you. They want to shape you. They love you and they see you as valuable. Godly parents are worthy of honor. Now, parents, listen, make it easier on your children to honor you through how you live for Jesus. 
determining honor back in the day, like I said, was weighing something to determine its authenticity, and your children, I promise you, are looking at you. They're observing you. They're looking for genuineness and authenticity to see in your faith walk how much honor do you really have. Be authentic. Be genuine. Be honorable, and they are more likely to honor you. Now, this command, Paul says, comes with a promise, namely that it may go well with you, that you may flourish in life. This is not a conditional promise of prosperity, that as long as you legalistically obey your parents, you'll have long life and luxury and health and wealth and prosperity. That's not exactly what it's saying. This is a proverbial wisdom principle. He's saying, the Lord is saying, it is to your advantage, children, to listen to and follow the advice and guidance of your parents who are instructing you in the Lord. Why? Because godly parents want what is best for their children. You know, sometimes we will ask our little girls to do something, and they'll ask, why? Oh, and as a dad, like my toes curl up, I could feel it rising from my feet, like steam is starting to come out of my ears, my face turns red, my facial expressions get all curmudgeon-y, and then this rage starts to rise in me. I feel the fatherly growl, and everything in me wants to say, because I said so. <laughs> and because I said so just does not work. But when they ask why, it's not necessarily a bad thing. Now, if they ask it like this, why, okay, that's bad. That's disrespectful. The tone means something. But if they ask why, they're inquisitive. Listen, asking questions is a good thing. That's how we learn. Asking why is a good formative thing. Questions are how we learn. Questions are how we teach. And so it can be a teaching opportunity, a parental moment. And so we try to explain to our girls that mommy and daddy need you to obey. We reassure them that we love them, that we want what is best for them even when they don't understand. And God wants what is best for us, even when we don't understand, even when we disagree, even when we think we know what is best for ourselves. God doesn't have rules for rules' sake. He has rules, commands to protect and to guide and to help us flourish that it may go well with us. Parents do the same thing with their children. See, God's commands are directions to navigate life and to flourish in life. Anyone know what GPS stands for? Anybody? God provided scripture. Okay, that's, that's, <laughs> that's my last dad joke of the sermon, I promise. That was cheesy. It is actually technically a global positioning system, but you'll remember that. God provided scripture. God's commands in the Bible are designed to help us flourish in life, to avoid destruction, even in the moment it seems like they don't, when it's the opposite of what we want or think is best. Parents, we do the same thing. So parents then, we are to use these God-given guidelines to guide and direct our children toward flourishing in life the way God designed, the way God intended. In other words, parenting involves trust. For our children to believe that we want what is best for them, we have to want what is best for them. It's a trust fall. It's a trust jump. It's a leap of faith. The promise is that children are to obey and honor their parents and the Lord because their parents will help them flourish. They have to believe that. 
They need to know that you love them and will do what is best for them, even when they don't see it or understand it in the moment. You are building trust. We were on vacation last week. We went to Ohio and West Virginia and uh, went to some beautiful areas. And if you were to ask our little girls, in fact, literally, if you ask Genevieve or Penelope right after this service, you say, hey, girls, what was your favorite part of the vacation? They wouldn't say hiking or going to the mountains or going to, you know, these children's things or the playground. or You know what they would say? Going to the swimming pool at the hotel. <laughs> I don't even know that we need to go anywhere, Sky. They just want to go to a swimming pool. That's, that's all they care about. They love swimming pools. And one of their favorite games at the swimming pool is they will be on the edge and they're like, Daddy, catch me! And they just jump and they want me to catch them while I'm in the water. They love that. Now, Genevieve is seven, Penelope is three, and Genevieve now, I mean, she will stand back here and she'll be like, just like, you know, flying leap, Superman. I have to like, like a wide receiver, oh man, and catch her. But she didn't, she wasn't always like that. She's been doing this game since she was two. And I remember when she was two, she would do it like this. I'd say, okay, jump, I'll catch you. And she would kind of, you know, maybe sit down and scoot off or just kind of barely lean. But over the years, as we built trust, and she takes a flying leap. Now, what would happen if she's like, Daddy, catch me. I'm like, okay. And then I get distracted, talk to someone else. What? Okay, yeah, I'll be there. And the, oh! And she just jumped in, and she's sinking to the bottom. I'm like, oh! And I pick her up. Do you want to do that again? No! <laughs> oh, yes, I love having nose, uh, water go up my nose and drowning to the bottom of the pool. No! I just lost her trust, and now I have to rebuild the trust again. Because trust takes time. It takes repeating outcomes, showing care and concern and love. Your kids need to develop trust with you that you are guiding them for their ultimate good. Now, dads, granddads, father figures, here is what, look at verse 4. Here's what Paul says to you in verse 4. Fathers, do not provoke your children to anger. And all the children said, <laughs> You didn't have to aim in that. But bring them up in the discipline and instruction of the Lord. This command is addressed to fathers, but it can apply to all parental figures. And it complements verses 1 through 3 that was just given to children. This is the other side of the coin. It's this biblical formula that we see given in Scripture often. Don't do this, but do this. So he says, do not provoke your children to anger. In the NIV, it says, do not exasperate your children. I remember when I was a kid, I would tell my dad, don't you exasperate me. I didn't even know what it meant, but I knew this verse. <laughs> exasperate means to intensely irritate or frustrate. Many of the other translations say provoke, but the idea is similar. Don't unnecessarily irritate your kids or behave in such a way that causes them intense frustration or incites bitterness. Provoking is like poking an animal with a stick or poking your spouse with a stick. <laughs> Eventually, they're going to snap and they're going to attack. In provoking, there is this repeated, ongoing pattern of treatment that gradually builds up deep-seated deep anger and resentment that boils over in outward hostility. Provoking is repetitive. If you are provoking your children, their anger toward you may be more righteous than your actions or attitude toward them. In Colossians 3.21, Paul gives a similar verse. He says, do not provoke lest they become discouraged. So if we mash these two verses together, it's fathers, do not provoke your children to anger lest they become discouraged, lest 
they be so beaten down that they have lost hope. Lest he has lost motivation. Lest she doesn't care anymore. A discouraged child is one who has lost heart. And a child's heart is the most important, vital, crucial battlefield that you have as a parent. Fight for their heart. I hate discouraging my kids. Now, you know, if I tell them to do something and they don't do it and they're all discouraged, okay, that's on them. That just is what it is. But I hate discouraging them for poor reasons. When I know, ah, that was my fault. Both my girls do the same thing. They drop their heads, they curl their shoulders, and they, they pull the Charlie Brown walk. You know what I'm talking about? Wah, 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 wah. And they do this, and I hate it. I don't want to make their head droop. I want to lift up their head. Fathers, dads, listen. Do not discourage them. Encourage them. Do not provoke them. Guard their hearts. See, we want to be good parents, but sometimes in wanting to do the right thing, we end up doing the right thing the wrong way because of our approach. And so how might fathers or parents in general unintentionally provoke? Now, I don't mean abuse. Abuse is intentional, intentional provocation, and it is wicked, it is evil, it's despicable. That's not what I'm talking about. I'm talking about how might we unintentionally provoke. I'm going to give you 10 things real fast. They're not going to be on the screen, so if you're going to write them down, you've got to write them down quick. Here we go. Number one acting like tyrants. Fathers, you are not literally king over your castle. You don't have a castle, literally. You're not king over your castle. Heavy-handed, harsh, fear-based methods only produce restless or rebellious children who resent that kind of treatment. A heavy hand does not work. A heavy hand pushes away. So rather, be like our own heavenly father, nurturing, loving, Merciful. Now, be firm. I'm not saying don't be firm. Be firm. Be strict when it calls for it, when this scenario calls for it. Be firm. Be strict. But there's a difference between being firm and strict and being harsh and cruel. Don't be cruel. Don't be harsh. Number two, public shaming. Correct your children, but never shame them. Christians, we don't operate by guilt and shame. We operate by Holy Spirit conviction. Those are different. And so correct your children, but never shame them, especially publicly, as it will scar them for a long time. If you shame them in front of an audience, it's one thing to shame them, but you, you shame them in front of an audience, you're adding shame upon shame. Don't do that. Celebrate them publicly. Correct them privately. Number three, conditional care. A child needs approval and encouragement in things that are good every bit as much as he needs correction in things that are not good, in things that, you know, if they behave poorly, you correct that. You know, you use positive affirmation when you need to, and you use discipline when you need to. But listen, however, love and care should be unconditional, not tools for reward or punishment. In other words, if your kid is good, you don't like bring them in close and embrace them, but then when they're bad, you shun them, you ostracize them, you distance them. They're going to get a complex. Seriously, they will get a mental issue if you do that. They will become emotionally stunted. That's not how God operates. God operates with unconditional love and care and concern. He embraces us when we're rebellious. He holds us when we want nothing to do with him. When we are sinful, he is still there, present, loving us. So love and care unconditionally. Number four, favoritism. 
When you show special favor to one child, it usually, likely, builds resentment in another. We think about Jacob and Esau in Genesis. Didn't turn out so well. Number five, hypocrisy. Living hypocritically before them with higher expectations for them than for yourself. Remember, your children are looking for authenticity. They want to see an authentic, genuine Christian life so that they may honor you. Number six, arbitrary or unfair demands. Performance-based parenting puts undue pressure on them. You know what happens when you put pressure on a structure, like a bridge or a truss or a, a building? You put pressure on one spot, heavy pressure repeatedly over time. You know what happens? It buckles under the weight. It can't sustain that pressure. When you put pressure to perform on your kids over and over and over and over and over, hammering that into them. You know what happens? They're gonna buckle under the weight. Now, I'm not a fan of participation trophies, you know, where everyone gets a blue ribbon just for being there. That's just personal opinion, that's not biblical, but life is more than achievements. Yeah, celebrate the achievements of your kids, that's good. When they do great things, celebrate. When they achieve great things, celebrate that. But celebrate the journey, the process, the hard work, just as well as the destination. Do not do performance-based parenting. Number seven, helicopter parenting. This is parental micromanaging. You're not training them to be independent and make decisions on their own. I mean, we, we've seen these parents that, I mean, they're breathing down their necks and they're, they're, they're all over them. They never leave their side. They're just... Respect their boundaries. A big part of growing from being an adolescent to being an adult is learning to be independent and make decisions for yourself. Help them to do that. Don't do helicopter parenting. Number eight, this is the ugly cousin of helicopter parenting, bubble parenting. You cannot nor should not shelter your children from every tough consequence of their choices and actions. You, you, you can't, you shouldn't. Let them reap the rewards of their stupid decisions. When they make a mistake, they got to reap the repercussions. When they do something dumb, they have to see that there are consequences. Now, protect them from harm, but don't shelter them in fear. Consequences are good teachers. They actually are teaching them, helping them learn. Number nine, irrelational uninvolvement. This is the opposite end of the spectrum from helicopter parenting. Helicopter parenting is you're smothering them. This is you are so distanced, often because you are so busy or maybe don't even care. Children are not an intrusion. They're not interfering on your plans for happiness. God gave them for a reason. Enjoy them. Enjoy hanging out with your kids. Encourage them. Take joy in them. Show them affection. And number 10, the biggest mistake, bar none, that Christian parents make, behavior modification. Don't care more about uh, good behavior than holy hearts. Would you rather them be outwardly moral or inwardly holy? Don't address the fruit before you get to the root. Jesus says, out of the heart, the mouth speaks and so instead, listen. Listening is something that our culture just doesn't do. Our society doesn't do well in listening. So sit down with them, let them talk, and listen reflectively. Listen actively. You know, when they talk, to say, so what I hear you saying is, and then you summarize, you paraphrase in your own words what they just said. Now, what does that do when you do that? It makes them feel valued. It makes them feel loved. It makes them feel heard. They know that you listened. Listened. 
And when you listen, now you can go deep to address their heart because you know where to go. You know where to navigate. Good behavior will come from a transformed heart. So do not provoke your children to anger, but the flip side is, but raise them up, nourish them, look after them, literally nurture them. Again, seek their well-being, seek what is best for them in the discipline and instruction of the Lord. Do not beat down, but raise up. Do not provoke with impatience and injustice, but instead shepherd with tenderness through discipline and instruction. Discipline is training. The root word for discipline and discipleship is the same, and it's this word that meant learner or learning. So discipline is a form of learning. It's training. It involves correcting them for poor behavior, but far more importantly, training their hearts and their minds. If parents are guides, then biblical discipline is course correction. It is modeling Christ and training a child in the ways he should go, Proverbs 22, 6, all to protect and shape a child's heart. You are crafting and molding and shaping and cultivating the way they think, the way they value, teach and demonstrate how they are to live. Now, discipline is hard work. It is often laborious, sometimes painful, but oh, how necessary discipline is. Any of you ever seen The Karate Kid? Like the one from the 80s, remember Karate Kid? You have Daniel LaRusso. And Daniel is this kid who just keeps getting beaten up by bullies. And one day, Mr. Miyagi comes to his defense and he beats up the bullies using karate. And Daniel's like, oh, teach me karate. He says, okay, come to my place tomorrow. And so he does. He, he goes to his place and he says, I want to learn karate like you know. And Miyagi says, okay. And he hands him a sponge. Remember that? And Daniel's like, what, what am I supposed to do with this? He says, I want you to wash all these cars. And then I want you to what? Wax on, wax off, wax on, wax off, wax on, wax off, over and over and over and over and over. Then I want you to paint the fence, then I want you to paint the house, and then I want you to scrub the floors. All these repetitive motions for these menial chores. And so Daniel, after several days, is like, you're just wanting me to do your dirty work. Literally. What is with all these menial chores? And Miyagi says, hmm, show me wax on, wax off. And he attempts a striking move at Daniel, and Daniel defends it with the wax on, wax off. And then it clicks, and he realizes, oh, all those repeated motions over and over and over were to teach me through muscle memory defense techniques. That's discipline. Train your children in the discipline of the Lord over and over and over and over until it becomes spiritual muscle memory. Wax on, wax off in the Lord over, 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 like provoking, which is repetitive, this also is repetitive, but with good, healthy things. You're not poking the bear unnecessarily. You are training them through repetition to be godly. But it's not just discipline. Look what he says. It's also what? Instruction. Instruction is also repetitive. You are training them through instruction to think godly. So discipline is training them through rep repetition to be godly, instruction is training them through repetition to think godly. How? Proclaim the gospel to your children constantly. Tell them about Jesus every second you can, every chance you can. Be creative with it over and over and over. Wax on, wax off. Teach them integrity. 
Integrity literally means undivided wholeness. So for them to have integrity means they are not divided between God and the world. They are morally upright because they are complete in the Lord. Their identity is in Jesus. They're satisfied in him, so they are one in him. They don't need anything else. They don't need approval from people. They have it from God. And the currents of society will be or already are strong against them, I promise, like a raging river. You know, when we were in West Virginia, we saw several waterfalls, waterfalls and rivers and these magnificent, beautiful, majestic waterfalls. But in the middle of these waterfalls or rivers would be these huge, large, immovable boulders, these large rocks that were there for decades or centuries standing against the current. Large immovable rocks. Well, we have the greatest immovable rock, the one who is the same yesterday, today, and forever, Jesus Christ. So train them to cling to the rock when the river of insults and mockery from their peers is raging. Teach your children to treasure the word of God, which means you need to treasure it. Parent them to love and trust the Lord above all. Parenting involves repetition in grace and with patience. So parenting in the Lord is helping them learn and grow in the Lord, to go from folly to wisdom, from childishness to maturity, from self-centeredness to loving others, and hopefully, God willing, someday from sin to salvation. Bottom line, you know, the whole series is called Bottom Lines of the Bible, so what's the bottom line here? Parents... Your main role is to guide your children toward Jesus. And it's hard. Parenting is hard work. And I get an amen from the parents. It is hard. I was talking to Sky about this the other day, last week, and she's like, you know, being a parent is crazy. Because you take this little creature that comes out of your abdomen, this tiny little cute thing covered in goop, who knows how to do nothing. They don't even know how to poop well. And you take this little thing and you shape them over years, crafting them, molding them to be a person. Ideally, Lord willing, a man or woman who loves the Lord. And we will not do this perfectly. And even if you do it well, the onus is on your children to follow the Lord, ultimately. I mean, King Solomon was one of the wisest persons to ever walk the face of this earth. He wrote Proverbs chapters 1 through 9, which is fatherly advice to his son, likely Rehoboam, who would become the next king. And Rehoboam, who received this godly wisdom instruction, ended up being a foolish, stubborn, idolatrous king. So it's not foolproof. But be diligent to train your children in the Lord and show grace to them and show grace to yourself. John MacArthur Years ago, I received this letter from a dad. I'm just going to call it a confession of an emptiness Christian father. And the dad wrote this. My family is all grown, and the kids are all gone. But if I had to do it all over again, this is what I would do. I would love my wife more in front of my children. I would laugh with my children more at our mistakes and our joys. I would listen more, even to the littlest child, I'd be more honest about my own weaknesses, never pretending perfection. I would pray differently for my family. Instead of focusing on me, I would focus on them. I would do more things together with my children. I would encourage them more and bestow more praise. I would 
pay more attention to little things like deeds and words of thoughtfulness. And then finally, if I had to do it all over again, I would share God more intimately with my family. Every ordinary thing that happened in every ordinary day, I would use to direct them to God. Fathers, listen. Dads, grandfathers, fatherly figures, parents in general, more than anything, look to the ultimate father in heaven. Look to his grace. Look to his example. Look to his help. Look to his guidance. Look to his strength. You know, I think about my favorite, one of my favorite stories in all of scripture is the parable that Jesus tells of the prodigal son. You have this rebellious young son who goes to his dad and he says, dad, I want your inheritance that you're supposed to give to me, which would only be given if the dad died. So he's literally saying, dad, I don't care if you're dead or alive. I don't care about you. I just want your stuff. Give me your stuff. And the dad says, okay. And he graciously, doesn't have to, but he gives him his inheritance. And the son runs off to a foreign land far away and squanders it on prostitutes and drugs and wild living and parties. And then there's a famine in the land and he loses it all. He loses all his money. All his friends, they're gone. Everything he had, gone. And he reaches the end of himself and he hires himself out to a pig farmer. Now pigs were unclean animals to the Jewish people. So this in and of itself shows how desperate he is. He's at the pig farm and he's looking at the food the pigs are eating and going, man, that looks good. And then he comes to a sense, he's like, what am I thinking? I had it all. I had it all with my father. You know, maybe I'm not a son anymore, but maybe I could go back as a slave. I might have lost my status as a son, but hey, I can be his servant. I'll just humble myself and go back and confess and repent and say, dad, can I at least be one of your servants? So cut to the next scene, and he's on his way there. And on the hillside, here he is coming to the homestead. And his dad sees him in a distance, and he immediately recognizes him, probably sees his silhouette, knows how he walks, knows how he looks, knows how he acts, and, and he recognizes him. And he doesn't just sit on the porch twiddling his thumbs like, well, I'll wait till he comes to me. You know what the father does? What does the father do? Come on, church, what does the father do? He runs, he runs to his son, and, and, and which is extremely undignified for a, an older man in ancient Middle East. You know, he's in his robes. They live in an honor-shame culture. He doesn't care about the shame. He doesn't care about the indignity. He doesn't care about how hot it is, how sweaty it is, about the physical, physical exertion. He runs to his son, and his son says, Dad, I'm not worthy to be your son. I'll be a slave. I messed up. He says, shh, shh. You are my son. Kill the fatted, fatted calf. We're going to have a feast tonight. We're going to have a barbecue. We're going to live it up. We're going we're gonna to party. Get the festal robes. Get the royal robes. Drape them on him. Put jewelry on his fingers because my son, who was dead, is now alive. Who was lost, is now found. And he embraces it and holds him. And that's the love of our father. So... When we sing, run to the Father, the only reason we can sing that, the only reason we can bring our prayers and our weaknesses and our shame and our uh, struggles and our habits and all these things, the only reason we can run to him and lay these at his feet is because the Father runs to us.